Welcome to the Consultancy Insights Podcast, the show where we provide you with insights to help you build and grow your consultancy business. Today's guest is Carl Reader. Carl is chairman at multi-award winning franchise accounting firm DT and is the author of the Franchising Handbook. He has previously served as affiliate chair and board member of the British Franchise Association. Carl has spoken to global franchising audiences about best practice in franchising and has worked with countless household brand names. He has been recognised as one of the 20 faces of franchising by What Franchise magazine, is a judge of many industry awards and regularly contributes to the trade press. Thank you very much, Carl Reader. Um, good to meet you. Um, we're in an elevator together going up to the 15th floor of a power block. What, what do you say to me in those 15 seconds about what you do? Well, you know what? I probably bore you to tears. So um, summing it up in 15 seconds is really difficult uh, because I wear a few different hats. But I would probably just say that I'm the author of Boss It, a new business book that helps you control your time, your income and your life. Excellent. And just, just so you see... There's the book. Fantastic. What a, That's what I'd like to see. What a so great advert. I've got one on my desk too. <laughs> right, that's it. We're done. We can go now. <laughs> um, no, so Sharon at um, WorkBuzz sent me, sent me a copy. Um, Fantastic. So un- unfortunately, I didn't buy it, Carl, but um, I was going to buy it. And then I got an email from Sharon saying, oh, would you like a free copy of Carl's book? And I was like, Oh, yes, please. That'd be great. So um, I'm, I'm reading through it at the moment. So, yeah, it's a good read. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, your background, how you got into business and where it all started. Yeah, of course. Well, it actually it all started by accident, I would say. So if I go back, I'm not going to go back as far as the midwife holding me up by my feet, but I am going to go back to the age of 15 where I left school. And I was just fed up with the academic system and didn't really see the point of turning up, to be honest, and decided to go into a YTS in hairdressing. Lasted all of about six weeks. Um, You could say I wasn't cut out for it. You can make all kinds of jokes. But anyway, went, went back to school, did my GCSEs, but had to get a job. And I had no idea what path I was going to take in life, to be honest. So obviously you've got these options for whilst at school are open to you and I was fortunate enough to go to a grammar school so um, I guess the fortunate side of that is certainly when you're in that academic system you've got a whole lot more options open to you than you might have at let's say a comprehensive but having left very early having really not done too well in my GCSEs because I'd missed probably a third of my final year um, I didn't have very many options so I had to um, pick up the job paper and apply to every job that I found and ended up falling into accountancy, but not even knowing what an accountant was, what they did, who they served, and so on. In fact, I remember quite clearly going to the library beforehand, um, dusting off a careers book and reading about what an accountant does. So anyway, went into accountancy, and that was, I guess, the beginning of my career in business. And whilst it was an unconventional route in, I guess the route I took within accountancy was even more unconventional because I found out pretty soon that I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like adding up numbers. So what I found was I really enjoyed speaking to business owners and trying to ask them um, questions about their business, which are probably the simple questions, the ones that most professionals are too embarrassed to ask. Like, why do you do this? Why do you do that? How does this work? And I found that 
probably within a couple of years, I'd met a thousand odd business owners and I'd asked a thousand odd questions, but most advisors would never ask because they would never put themselves in that position of vulnerability to show that they didn't know something. So I moved from doing accounts to training business owners to um, then starting to build a portfolio, built a portfolio, then took on a team to build a portfolio, started doing marketing, led to doing a management buyout of DNT. Um, so then we then scaled that up to biggest franchise accounting firm in the country. Um, from there, I wrote three books of a startup coach for franchising handbook and finally boss it. And um, I spend most of my time now advising um, small businesses and really giving them the advice that I wasn't given as a child. So as a child, I was given advice that business is complicated. I did GCSE business studies and it was about share valuations and big glass buildings. It wasn't about the reality of business. So in my columns in the press and so on, what I try to do is to demystify business and actually help people understand that business doesn't need to be complicated. It's hard work, but it's not complicated. Definitely. I'm, I'm a big believer in, uh, in KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. It's um, going back to basics is so important. It really is. And the problem that we have in the business world is that so many people are motivated to find a problem and expand that problem to then sell the solution. Mm. And actually, business is really simple. It's about buying something for a five and selling it for a tenner. But along the way, we lose sight of that. And so um, any more books in the pipeline or are you, are you done at your three now? Hey, quite possibly. So, do you know, have it's you really the interesting. Bug, the writing you're, bug. You're the first, yeah, you're the first person to hear this. But over lockdown, I've been... I've been thinking about it and I think we've all explored our own, I guess, inner hobbies and what we want to achieve and so on. And I've, I, I actually, for a passing moment, and I don't know if it will come to fruition, but I thought about writing a fiction book. Now, that's going to be really tough because I've never read one, or certainly not since school anyway. Um, I think To Kill a Mockingbird was the last one I read and it was <laughs> when I was 14 or 15. So it's yeah i don't know where that idea came from uh, but yeah certainly the bugs within me and i think that there will be at least one more book but i would like to make it a little bit different from the book so far yes okay and um talking about franchising you're obviously you've held um chairman position at bfa was it or yeah so affiliate chairman and i served on the board as well yeah okay and you still involved with the bfa or Kind of. So the way the BFA governance works, you get a fixed term, but you can be a director. So did my fixed term and it's on a rotating basis. So I'm still involved, but not um, it's more as a supporter, advocate and member than as a board member. How do you so with with DNT, how do you make yourself stand out as a business and how do you advise the businesses that you serve? Um, how, how do you advise them to stand out? That's a really good question. I'm going to try to unpick as briefly as possible, if that's okay, Phil, but I'll probably go on a couple of different tangents. Um, it's quite easy, in all honesty, to stand out as DNT because we've got a very easy playing field. Accountancy is not known as being the most dynamic of professions when it comes to marketing, promotion, sales, and so on. So it was fairly easy. Now it's getting tougher. Uh, yeah, don't get me wrong, it's not as easy as it was before. But it was really simple. Look, yeah, look, look at me. I, I don't. I know everyone says they're not a typical accountant, but I really didn't look like a typical accountant. In the, you know, I'd turn up in t-shirts and so on, and it was it was fairly easy to stand out visually. 
We made sure that our brand stood out visually. We made sure that we were leading the conversation both within the accounting world and as a conduit between the accounting world and small businesses by adopting technology first. Um, so before pretty much anyone else, we did online accounting back in 02. Um, we bought zero over to the country. It was the first QuickBooks partners. We, you know, we've done a lot of things to, to stay ahead of a pack, um, but that's all from a visual perspective. I, and I, I'm firmly of a belief that to differentiate as a business, you've got a couple of sides to it. You've got how you put yourself out to the outside world, which is important, but you've also got underneath what you actually do and the way that you um, offer a different service and a different way of doing things. So our vision as a business, and we ended up trademarking this, is adding value, not numbers. And that really summed up the way that I saw that DNT could service its clients, but also all of its stakeholders. Um, you know, we, we use a model called the five stars to describe our stakeholders. We've got our team at the top. We've got our clients, but on parity with our clients, we've also got the market that we serve, the franchising market. And then we've got the industry, which is the accounting industry and our community. And we wanted to make sure that for all of our stakeholders, we serve them in a different way to how most accountants do. So if we narrow down, I guess, onto the important ones for those watching this, which will be themselves, the clients, and themselves part of the market. For the market, we made sure that we really helped develop franchising in the UK as much as we can. So we built some um, IP around our franchise dashboard tool. Um, we, yeah, we really went to town on working on how we can tie up the correlation between the results of a business and the actions of the business to identify best practice, replicate it, and so on and so forth. Um, and then when it comes to actually how we work with our customers, yeah, what, what do we do to differentiate ourselves there? We tried to look for a cradle to grave service. Now, um, there is a much more crude term that I learned from a franchisor, actually, which I'm not going to share, um, which is actually from before cradle and after grave. Um, and let's just say it ends in resurrection. And yeah, that, that's the way we try and look. We try and look at the life cycle of a business and how we can help them from the very early days of when they're thinking of taking on a business and getting their funding and so on, right the way through to their exit. Mm. Well, that's really interesting because obviously we're, we're, we're talking about consultancy insights and there'll be uh, people that may be wanting to become consultants or are already consultants watching this. Um, and that is the advice that we're hearing over and over again. It's not the get in quick, run your project, get out. It's uh, build relationships with your clients and customers and really be with them for their lifetime and, yes. and serve them for your lifetime, for their lifetime. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's about um, you know, anything you do in business. I think that too many business owners tend to look at what they do in isolation. And actually, you've got to look at that bigger picture and where you can add value. And there's so many ways you can do it. You know, even if we were to look at a painter and decorator, for example, Phil, I'm sure you've had the experience where you've had someone working on your house or whatever, and they come in and they stink of tobacco. And, you know, even if you smoke yourself, it's not nice when they come in stinking of it or they don't put, you know, they don't take their shoes off or they leave a mess behind. And even little things like that can make a real difference to um, the way that your customer feels. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my, my background is, is the coaching industry and it's we've got plenty of examples of guarantees from plumbers that they won't show their their 
their, their bum crack or they'll come in and they won't swear and, and that's their guarantees and that's how it makes them stand out from the, from the competition. Um, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, um, so what, what advice would you give someone that is thinking about either moving into consultancy or starting their own business or getting into franchising? What would be your, your top few tips? Okay, so whew, that's, a, that's a really good question because I think the first one is to work out whether you want to be in business or be in a franchise. And the reason that I say that is that the two of them are very different. Um, I think franchising is a unique hybrid between, or, or for many people, franchising is a unique hybrid between employment and self-employment. So you have to have certain skills and personality traits as a franchisee that won't necessarily work as a standalone business owner and vice versa. Mm. For example, if you were to, let's take a major high street brand, if you were to buy a McDonald's franchise and you found that you had a load of, um, I don't know, a load of carpenters come in and you thought, you know what, it's going to be a really good idea to start selling saws and hammers and so on. That doesn't work for the franchise model. But the entrepreneurial mindset can sometimes go down that path. So as a franchisee, you'll get a slap on the wrist. As an entrepreneur, you'll feel like you've done a good job. Now, you might not have done a good job. You know, that's not necessarily the right decision, but the raison d'etre of an entrepreneur is to think outside the box and create new ideas and add value. So there is a difference. So I think that the first thing, if you're considering setting up a business and franchising is in your um, headspace of what you're looking at, you need to work out if franchising is right for you. Um, once you've done that, and let's assume for the purpose of this video, you decided to go down the franchising route, there's some very specific things that you need to do. You need to identify the sector that you want to work within. And I don't think that you should be too prescriptive on it, but you should identify the type of landscape that you want to work in. Do you want to be in retail, food and beverage, services, B2B, B2C, etc. So to understand very broadly what transferable skills you've got, but also, let's be honest, if it hits the fan and you've got to be working in that business, are you happy to do it? You know, it's all well and good, maybe buying a drain cleaning franchise because you think it's really profitable. Mm. But if you think that you're above that stuff, then that business is never going to be a success because sometimes you've got to roll your sleeves up and get stuck into that drainage. So it needs to be a sector that's right for you. You need to understand your investment capabilities as well. You know, how far... How much money can you put in? Um, re realistically, how much will the banks lend you? How how well can you sustain your income for your first year or so? You need to think about um, whether you've got the family support or not. Have you got um, have you got that back in? Because the last thing you want to hear as a franchisee, if it doesn't go as well as planned, is I told you so. And then finally, I think the most important thing when you've narrowed it all down before starting a franchise business. I know you only asked for a couple of tips, but this one is a bonus. <laughs> speak to people who've been down that path before because there's this wonderful thing about franchising that you're in a community of people who've done it they've been there they've seen it they've done it they know how the business works you've got a template and you know what it, it's very true that you're in business by yourself or sorry you're in business for yourself but not by yourself so speak to others would they invest in a franchise again what do they think of it and kick the tires of the franchisor mm. what's um with with covid obviously changing the world this year What's your view on COVID and franchising? Because franchising is a, is a step up the ladder, effectively. Do you see the franchising industry as being in a good place or might struggle a little bit? What's, what's your view? 
Okay, so COVID has been the most, um, I guess, dramatic, catastrophic, um, terrible, whatever adjective you want to use. It's been the biggest thing that's gone on in certainly in my lifetime and probably for most viewers' lifetimes. It's, um, it's probably the closest comparison in not even recent history would be a world war. It's affected the whole world and we've all been in that storm. And it would be wrong of me to say that franchising has pulled through it beautifully. However, I think that certainly in the past, what I've seen is that franchising tends to pull out of most downturns beautifully. So there is opportunity for franchising going forwards. I think that if we looked at the franchising sector for 2020, I think if we were to look at the number of franchisors, the number of franchisees, who was trading at the beginning and who was trading at the end, it would have probably gone down. There was undoubtedly business closures, yeah. as with every single sector. The difference and why franchising tends to pick up after a downturn and where I think the opportunity and the positive outlook for franchising is, is that when people lose their jobs, they tend to gravitate towards franchising because it is a relatively safe bet. We know that there's a significantly higher percentage of franchisees who are still trading after three years when compared to um, generic small businesses. You know, the failure rate for small businesses after three years is more like 50%. With good, strong business format franchisees, it's significantly higher than that. So the success rate is greater. And there's also the shortcut. You're able as a franchisee to buy into an existing brand, an existing system, and an existing culture, an existing way of doing things. So you've got all that stuff templated. If, and if you're new out of a career, it's fairly reasonable to consider that as an option. So I'm actually cautiously optimistic about 2021 for franchising. Mm. Yeah, from what I've heard of speaking with other franchisors, it's leads are up, that we feel the opportunity is there for us to grow our networks. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're looking forward to the future although there are Def obviously challenges around at the moment. so Definitely. So there's challenges at the moment. I mean, one of the services that we offer at DNT is franchise funding. And one of the issues with franchise funding right now is that the bank's efforts are focused solely and squarely on bounce back loans and C-bills. Yeah. So the EFG, which used to be a great route for franchise funding, isn't there. And the banks will likely be reluctant to lend until there's more evidence of things picking up. So that's going to cause a bit of a delay. And there'll be other challenges like that coming in as well. There's, I guess, another side to it is that redundancy packages might not be there in the same way that they have been before. So, again, that might be a challenge. But franchising, I, I strongly believe, will find its way through it. And, yeah, as you say, leads are up. People are wanting to invest in franchises. They're wanting that support and um not an easy way to start a business, but a facilitated way to start a business. And franchising can be the perfect option for that. For, for anyone that's um, in the consultancy world already, um, and maybe they're struggling to get clients or they're, they're not getting the success that they, they wish to be getting, what advice would you give them? Sure. So I think that we are moving rapidly. In fact, we have moved from the systemization automation world to actually realizing that we can't compete with the big boys you know if we uh, if we try and automate something and it's a really good idea google microsoft and everyone else are going to do it far quicker far better than us they've got deeper pockets yeah. so whereas 
in the, I guess, the business advisory space 20 years ago, we would all follow Veeam if we visited and try and automate what we're doing and systemize so on and, and rely on mantras such as extraordinary systems plus ordinary people give extraordinary results. That's a load of rubbish. That, that day's gone. And we're now in the world of having to really focus on human to human interactions. So there's the old cliche saying, um, it's been around for donkey's years. It's not B2B or B2C, it's H2H, human to human. And there's another side to it. When we look at automation, the things that can't be automated are specialist human skills and specialist interpersonal skills. And as a consultant, we need to look at where we can major in one or other or potentially both. Because let's say, for example, we can compare a antique furniture repairer versus Ikea. Ikea can bring more and more robots into what they're doing. They don't need team members on the shop floor. That can still be automated. But you can't automate the eye of a specialist furniture repairer who will know exactly what shade of paint to fill it in and how to you know, repair that crack or whatever. Mm. So polar opposites. And it doesn't matter if a furniture repairer can communicate or not. They've got that specialist skill. Likewise, when it comes from um, interpersonal skills, if you are an order taker, you could probably be uh, automated. If you are a top ranking rainmaker, you probably can't be. So there's that fine balance. And I guess the perfect example is for dentist who could be, you know, certainly I'm scared of needles, believe it or not. So it, for a dentist to work Are, they, are those fake, fake tattoos on your hands, are they? They're not. No, no. I, I don't know why I can do tattoos, but I can't do injections. Um, but specifically with a dentist, for a dentist to get me in that chair, he's not only got to be good at his job and get the certificates, he's got the specialist skills, but he needs to charm a pants off of me as well. Mm. So there's two sides to it. And as a consultant, you need to look at like, where can you, where can you really put yourself out there in either specialist skills or interpersonal skills. You know, where can you um, focus on what Michael Porter used to call product differentiation or how can you truly relate to your customers human to human age? Mm. And I think that as another side to that as well, I would say personal branding is the currency of today for consultants and for anyone giving a human to human um, service rather than hiding behind a, a computer screen. I know we have to do that at the moment, but be out there, meet people and create that relationship. Because instead of going to the cinema nowadays, we're watching Netflix. Instead of going to restaurants, we've got Uber Eats and Deliveroo and so on. Mm. And we are a societal race. We're a societal being and we want to deal with other people. And that's something that is a really easy way for consultants to set themselves apart is to be themselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's so important to build that rapport, isn't it? And just to be a real human being and not be that stage like, oh, what should I say or what should I not say? Oh, completely. Listen, we, we all deal with, in our personal lives, we all deal with chatbots, for example. You know, if you want to send something back to Amazon or whatever, you've got to go through the rigmarole. And you know, when you log on to that chat box, you know that <laughs> the three options it's going to give you, you're not going to want any of them. Speak, speak to advisor, speak to advisor. That's what I say. And, and the problem is... If, if you work to a script, now whether that script is a genuine script or it's a script of what you feel you need to do to tick certain boxes and be professional and um, be another anonymous consultant, you might as well be a chatbot. No one wants to deal with you. But if you can just be yourself and have some personality and 
be known for being yourself, mm. then actually you make it so much easier to build that rapport. Yeah. Yeah. And you might, you might put off some people if you've got a big personality or you could be a Marmite character and some people just don't want to deal with you. But oh, the, 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 um, what's the expression? Your, your, vi- your, your vibe attracts your tribe. So it's very much yeah, around working with people that are similar to you or get on with you and like you. This is it. And I think that um, it's probably worth just mentioning, and it's going off off piece a little bit, but some people actually use the Marmite approach deliberately, and they deliberately try to alienate some people mm. in the belief that it captures others. Mm. And I think that's, personally for me, that's the wrong way about it. I think you have to frame it positively, work out where you're going, but just accept the fact that some might not like you. Yeah, yeah. So rather than trying to antagonise people through personal branding, um, try and be the bit of Marmite people love, and yes, there'll be there'll be some that don't love it, but so be it. Mm. And what's what would you say? How because obviously a lot of people would try to build their personal brand. It's probably a little bit like my son. He started a YouTube channel because he sees all these YouTubers and he he thinks he's going to be the next one. But it it takes a lot of time and work and dedication and and promotion. How would you how would you see yourself as a building your personal brand from a nothing level to suddenly making it? Because is, is, is there a sudden lift, do you think? Uh, so I can only talk about my own experience because I'm, I'm not really an expert on this stuff, but I, I've got up to about 160,000 followers on social and there was nothing sudden, um, but it might have appeared like that to the outside world potentially. Mm. And I mean, I started doing social media stuff back in 2008, I think I started on Twitter. And it's just... You know, one tweet after another, after another. I think that you have to remember Consist- the iceberg consistency. effect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, consistency, consistency, consistency. You have to remember the iceberg effect, but there will come a point where it crops up above the sea level, but actually there's a whole lot underneath it. Yeah. Um, it is tough, though, because if you were to ask me to answer honestly, if I could replicate what I've done over the last 12 years on, um, I guess, personal branding, social media stuff and so on, if I could replicate that today... I couldn't answer that, honestly. I, I couldn't say yes, because there's other factors at play. The first one being, I mean, you mentioned your son's trying to do it. My son's trying to do it. Every, everyone and his dog's trying to do it. Yeah. And there wasn't that competition back then. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the dynamic of what people are looking for from content creators has changed as well. So even if we look you know, just five, six years ago, the types of videos that would get traction. And I, I know I'm going very specific, very hyper-specific here, but the types of videos that get traction would be walking around and holding a mobile phone and doing a vlog. Nowadays, people think, what on earth are you doing? Can't you afford a ring light? Can't you afford a tripod? It's, it's a very different way of doing things. And with the competition going up, the barriers to entry have gone up as well. So, so yeah, it's, it's one of those things I think that, Personal branding, we, we do also need to remember, is not just about social media. It's not just about online presence. It's about understanding who you are, what you offer to your customers, what you offer to the wider world, and just being authentic to that throughout everything you do. Yeah, and back, backing yourself effectively. Absolutely, yes. 100%, 100% knowing what you're doing and where you're going and, and what your offering is. Completely. I mean, a, a great example of this would be, if you if you feel had let's say a hundred ideal customers and they were all worth a million pounds to you and you knew realistically if you built a personal brand with them you could get 10 of them okay yeah would you bother with twitter 
or Instagram or anything else? Or would you focus solely on the activities that could build your reputation with those individuals? Yeah, just that. So uh, there's a much bigger piece to it as well. You need to look at what the end goal is mm. and I guess your motivations behind it as well. What, why are you trying to go in that direction? Thanks for listening. And you can catch up with the latest episodes of the Consultancy Insights on the ERA website. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share and leave us a review. And if you have any questions for future episodes of the show, leave a message at anchor.fm forward slash consultancy insights.